Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial. It's been an amazingly distressing week in terms of the coverage of what's going on in the courtroom in Minneapolis where Derek Chauvin is on trial. And even as that is happening, uh, there was another police shooting, this one of Dante Wright, also in Minneapolis. And it requires journalists who are doing this to sort of cover all these things at once. What's going on in the courtroom, protests in the streets, what's going on with the Dante Wright case, and how to put all this together to, so it makes sense, and how to sort of tell the wider story is the job of journalism now as we face a critical week next week when a verdict could well come down in the Chauvin trial. I'm really happy to be joined by Jelani Cobb, New Yorker staff writer who has a piece about this this week in The New Yorker and has been covering the George Floyd murder since it happened last May. Welcome, Jelani. Thank you. So you've been reporting from Minneapolis for how, how, long, how long were you there? Eight days. Eight days. What does that mean? Like, what, how do you do that? So you want to, you, cause you want to keep an eye on what's happening in the courtroom, but you also want to keep an eye on what's happening in the street. So how did you, how did, how did you go about your reporting? So uh, these are strange times as we already know. <laughs> and um, the nature of the trial was that only two reporters could be inside the actual courtroom. Uh-huh. Uh, and so they were doing pool reports and in the courtroom, the um, in the courthouse, uh, the media were watching the proceedings on a bank of televisions. And so the communications person uh, for the courthouse literally said, it's no different than you watching it in your living room. Yeah. And so that freed me up a little bit because uh, I went out to the area where George Floyd died, which has been renamed uh, by the community George Floyd Square. I'm not sure if that's the official name of it um, at this point. But I went there and started talking to people and I always knew that I could watch on the internet later Mm -hmm. uh, the court testimony. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so in some ways it made it easier uh, because I wasn't going to miss anything in the courtroom, anything that I wouldn't have already seen mm-hmm. um, on TV, but I would have missed, you know, the people who were out in the community. I don't know if you had time to watch any of the coverage of the protest, especially after um, the killing of Dante Wright, but I was wondering sort of how it read on TV versus what it was like to be there. You know, int- interestingly enough, um, people, I think, accuse the media of sensationalizing things. I think it was more intense in person than it came across uh-huh. uh, in some of the media coverage I saw. Uh, and, you know, the reason for that was that, you know, people were already on edge uh, because of the Derek Chauvin trial. And having covered very many of these stories at this point, there's an arc that's become familiar to me, which is that these things usually start out with a small nucleus of people uh, who are upset about it, and they do an outsized bit of work in terms of spreading the word. And uh, But when you go to the protests early on, uh, there are only a handful of people who are in the know. Uh, when I got to the police station in Brooklyn Center, mm-hmm. 
Dante Wright had been dead at that point for five hours, mm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And there were about 400 people outside. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is a lot. And also the other thing I think that didn't come across so much in the coverage is that you know, Brooklyn Center is a suburb. So that police station is not really around very much. Uh, there are a few apartment buildings nearby, but, you know, and then it's kind of like car dealerships and, uh, you know, storage unit places and that kind of thing. Uh, and so people had to make a point. It wasn't like they were just, you know, hopping on a train and going downtown. Uh, people had to make a point of going to where the police station was, uh, even such that and this is, I think, a probably perfectly suburban kind of scenario there were traffic jams among the protesters because uh-huh. there were so many people trying to get down these um, comparatively narrow roads yeah. in order to park. And conveniently, there was a gigantic parking lot across from the police station. Mm. So it, everyone parks and then gets out of their cars and comes to the protest. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you had a piece in the New Yorker about Chauvin right, and it reminded me of a. We had a conversation you and I did last summer um, mm-hmm. because we uh, CGR was organizing this event, and I remember just having a chat with you before the before as we were organizing this and asking how you're doing, and you were like, "I'm just exhausted. I'm just exhausted." Mm-hmm. And you know, it just struck me that like here we are nine months later, where there's a trial. This trial of this police officer is going on, and as that's going on. A, you know, a black kid gets killed by a cop. Right. Um, right. And your your New Yorker piece sort of addresses this, like, this almost like, this is, it, there there was a sense of like, you weren't convinced this, what, what that this cycle was going to stop. This just keeps going on and on and on. Right. And, and so what it does is make the point for people who were skeptical of police reform in the first place. You know, uh, and the conversation uh, that came out of George Floyd, there were there are usually three, there are two threads. Um, one is that there are people who want to reform and others who believe that they will defend the police no matter what and that whatever happened is just a small issue and there's no need to talk about systemic changes. Um, the nature of the George Floyd incident, I think, was such that we had two entirely different, the entire dialogue shifted to the left. So the threads were people who were in favor of reform and people who were in favor of kind of dismantling. Uh, There wasn't really much oxygen from people who thought that there was no problem with policing. Yeah. Uh, And so talking about making uh, changes and, you know, we need more training and, you know, those sorts of things uh, seemed to be, um, insufficient early on, but over the course of the ensuing year, people have kind of come around and say, oh, we have to figure out how to police uh, more effectively. Well, the biggest indictment of that idea is that this area, which was on edge, and everyone knew uh, that if ever there was a point where you needed to have very sensitive policing, it would be now. And in that context, you couldn't go two weeks, two full weeks, without there being an unarmed person being shot. 
Uh, and so I had a conversation with an activist uh, who was you know, deeply involved in things that came out of um, George Floyd, but had also been involved in issues of policing before that. Um, and, and he said that, you know, we need to fundamentally rethink what we mean by public safety. We need something different than what we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had this egregious incident in front of him as evidence that the arguments people have been making on the other side were frankly not going to cut, going to cut it. Yeah. Well, and this point was made, were you at that uh, press conference that Ben Crump held with uh, the Floyd and Wright family? Yes. Mm-hmm. I thought it was an extraordinary thing. Um, and, and this is a point that he kept making, like it's unbelievable that this happened while this trial, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost hard to get your head around. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I interviewed him the night before uh, at his hotel. And his he was there with George Floyd's brother, uh, Philonis. And he, they would, the two of them were talking about uh, what they were going to say to Dante Wright's mother. Uh, and I mean, it just struck me as just heartbreaking and horrifying that this man who lost his brother was sorting out how to console this woman who lost her son mm-hmm. and, and really trying to give her the lay of the land about how this would all play out mm-hmm. uh, in the public eye and so on. Uh, and I was like, that's, that is never an expertise that anyone should have. Yeah. Um, and so they were talking about that, and then they were saying there was going to be the press conference the following day, um, and you know there were you know, the entire uh, group of people. There were probably more people there than people even knew, uh, in terms of the relatives of of Dante and um, of George Floyd, and other kind of local people who were involved in activist groups and, and organizations and so on. Uh, and this was all calibrated, I think, to pressure the DA to do exactly what he did, uh, which is that they wanted to avoid the kind of protracted wrangling that characterized Derek Chauvin being charged, uh, where they were like, this is possible, maybe this will be, and so on. It was kind of back and forth. And then ultimately uh, he was charged. And then another charge was added on to that later. Uh, and they were they wanted the DA to swiftly uh, impose you know, the charges uh, that would be brought against Kim Potter. And that did happen. Uh, although I'm not sure people are entirely thrilled with what she has been charged with. So how are you feeling about next week? <sighs> you know, this. I hope this doesn't sound cynical, but the thing that differentiates the George Floyd case from any of the litany of cases like this that I've covered that we've seen in the news uh, in the past, I would say five years, but we could go back even further than that. The difference is that here, the police are not defending the actions of the accused. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Ben Crump commented on it. Uh, Al Sharpton commented on it. Uh, both of them made note of the fact that uh, the so-called blue wall of silence seemed to have broken down in this instance. And when I talked with the Floyd family, I spoke with his brother, Philonis, briefly, 
uh, and he said that he was uh, happy with how the prosecution had handled the case uh, and confident that they would get a conviction, which is saying a lot, you know, given the reluctance of juries uh, Mm -hmm. to convict police officers um, who are accused in cases like this. But what that said to me, and this is where I think that, you know, I hope it doesn't sound cynical, but it just kind of is what it is, is that, is this the bar? (laughs) You know, that excruciating nine minute, 29 second act of kneeling on someone's neck, which, I mean, just doing anything but 10 minutes, (laughs) you know, (laughs) is that's a lot. Yeah. You know, um, and if this is the bar, then a conviction in this case, if there even is one, that's not guaranteed. But if this is the bar, a conviction in this case would be in some way as damning as it would be um, commendable. Yeah. And if you... Have you spent much time thinking about what the implications of an acquittal would be? Oh, this, that doesn't require much thought. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has said this. And when I talk, when I, I, I talk to people from a, a range of backgrounds uh, in Minneapolis and St. Paul and you know, surrounding communities, uh, everyone, black, white, uh, old, young, of you know, varying backgrounds, uh, they all said that the city would go up in flames if... Yeah. Derek Chauvin was acquitted. One young man who I, I spoke to uh, outside the courthouse said something very interesting. You know, he said that he didn't think that Chauvin would get convicted on the most serious charges. He said, whatever is the lightest thing they can give him, mm-hmm. he'll probably get that. Uh, and if they acquit him, it won't even be us. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we won't even be the ones they have to worry about. It'll be all the other cities and cities in other countries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a matter of fact, in Minneapolis, we can just sit back and watch mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, the tensions around this case are so high. I don't know that that would happen, uh, but given what we saw, the scale of the reaction mm-hmm. last summer, it's highly possible that the young man was right. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you came back for the weekend. Are you going back now um, next week to to Minneapolis? Yeah, I will likely fly out um, Monday night uh, or at the latest Tuesday morning ahead of the verdict uh, and then try to report whatever comes down and talk to people after the case ends. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck next week um, with that. Stay safe and... um, it's great to connect again. Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, ideally it would be under kind of different circumstances, but uh, you know, this is the news and this is what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jelani. Thank you. So you can follow CJR's coverage of the coverage of the Chauvin case as it unfolds this week at CJR.org, on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Mm-hmm.